in new lows. On the American exchange, trading total 4 million shares, 465 issues advanced, 459 declined, 28 new highs, 33 new lows. The WOR Weather Watch update for New York City and vicinity, partly cloudy tonight, lows 25 to 30, partly sunny tomorrow, highs in the low 40s. Clear tomorrow night, lows in the low 30s, increasing cloudiness on Wednesday, highs in the 40s. Current temperature 36 degrees, humidity 67%, winds in northwest at 12 miles an hour, gusting to 30, and the barometer 29.96 inches, and it is rising. Highlights in the news at this hour. General alarm fire in Jersey City has been raging out of control for nearly four hours. Vacant factory building and several homes ravaged by the flames. Power sources indicate that Dr. Kissinger and Hanoi's laid duck toe are in the crucial final phase of the Indochina peace talks. New Jersey judge dissolves order, barring further construction of the black-sponsored housing project in Newark's North Ward. White opponents say they'll be back picketing first thing tomorrow morning. That's the latest from the WOR Newsroom. Lester Smith reporting. Hear news as it happens over WOR New York, your station for news. I'll be back with another full 15 minutes of news at 11 o'clock. And now here is Gene Shepard. side on the ebbing tide we sprawled through the ooze and slime or skittered with many a caudal flip through the depths of the Cambrian fen. <laughs> yes, my heart was rife with the joy of life for I loved you even then. 
mindless we lived, and mindless we loved, and mindless at last we died. And deep in the rift of the Caradoc drift we slumbered side by side. The world turned on in the lathe of time. The hot lands heaved amain, till we caught our breath from the womb of death and crept into light again. We were amphibians, scaled and tailed and drab as a dead man's hand, and coiled at ease neath the tribic trees or trailed through the mud and sand, croaking and blind, with our three clawed feet, writing a language dumb. With never a spark in the empty dark to hint at a life to come. Yet happy we lived, and happy we loved, and happy we died once more. Our forms were rolled in the clinging mold of a neocomian shore. The eons came, and the eons fled, and the sleep that wrapped us fast was riven away in a newer day. And then the night of death was past. Then light and swift through the jungle trees we swung, in our airy flights, or breathed in the bombs of the fronded palms, in the hush of the moonless nights. And oh, what beautiful years were there when our hearts clung each to each, when life was filled and our senses thrilled in the first faint dawn of speech. Thus, life by life. And love by love, we pass through the cycles, strange, and breath by breath, and death by death, we followed the chain of change, until there came a time in the law of life when, over the nursing side, the shadows broke and the soul awoke in a strange, dim dream of God. I was thewed like an auroch bull and tossed like the great cave bear. Oh, and you, my sweet, from head to feet, were gowned in your glorious hair, deep in the gloom of a fireless cave. When the night fell over the plain, and the moon hung red over the riverbed, we mumbled the bones of the slain. I flaked a flint to a cutting edge and shaped it with brutish craft. I broke a shank from the woodland lank and fitted it head and haft. Then I hid me close to the weedy tarn where a mammoth came to drink. Through the brawn and bone, I drove the stone and I slew it upon the brink. Loud I howled through the moonlit wastes. Loud answered our kith and kin from west and east to the crimson feast. The clan came tramping in over the joint and gristle and padded hoof. We fought and clawed and tore and cheek by jowl with many a growl. We talked them over the marble o'er. I carved that fight on a reindeer bone with. Rude and hairy hand, I pictured his fall on the t- on the cavern wall that men might understand. For we lived by blood and the right of might, ere human laws were drawn, and the age of sin did not begin until our brutish tush were gone. And that was a million years ago, at a time that no one knows. Yet here tonight, in the mellow light. We sit at Delmonico's. Your eyes are as deep as those beautiful Devon springs. Your hair as dark as jet. Your years are few. Your life is new. Your soul untried. <laughs> And yet, 
Our trail is on the Kimmeridge clay and the scarp of the Purbeck flags. We have left our bones in the bagshot stones and deep in the coralline crags. Our love is old, our lives are old, and death shall come again. Should it come today, what man may say we shall not live again? God wrought our souls from the trimadoc beds and furnished them with wings to fly. He sowed our spawn in the world's dim dawn. And I know that it shall not die. Those cities have sprung above the graves where the crooked bone men made war and the oxwing creaks over the buried caves where the mummied mammoths are. Then as we linger at lunch here over many a dainty dish, come, let us drink anew to the time when you were a tadpole and I, I was a fish. <laughs> How's that one for you, ecology cooks? Now you know, you know. Uh, don't uh, don't. By the way, do not write for a copy of it. We will not send it to you. Okay, we're not in the poetry business, but that's an old classic. When you were a tadpole, it was called. It's called evolution. When you were a tadpole and I was a fish. Hey, uh, friend. I hate to bring bad news. You know, I so often do this. Does a thought of driving on snow-covered roads in the Bronx give you the chills? It certainly does, Lindsay. I would uh, suggest that you uh, get ready this year early by picking up a set of uh, General's famous winter cleat snow tires. They're beautiful. I mean, they'll even take you through the Bronx in the middle of the snow. In fact, uh, General says, says this, you go in snow or Big General pays the toll. So, uh, you know, that's more than Lindsay did for you. So I would uh, suggest that if you live in Patterson, you can see Bob Dizell at General Tire Service, 306 Market Street. Uh, you tell him uh, Big Fred sent you. Have you ever gotten, uh, I guess, all, I don't know whether girls go through this or not. Again, I throw this out, and I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get 500 letters from you. Yes, we do. But did you ever go through the caveman period in your life when you were hung on cavemen? Do you... Agree, Jerry, that, that boys go through a period in their life when they're fascinated by cavemen? Were you ever, John? That's right. <laughs> and, 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 and I guess I guess you don't hear much about cavemen in this day and age now. You just simply don't. And I'll, I'll ask, here's a trivia question. Here's a real trivia question. Is there anybody out there who can give me... I'll, I'll award a brass figure with bronze oak leaf palm if you can tell me the name of a very popular... It wasn't uh, endless million years ago. In fact, it was very popular just about the time that radio drama, and this was in the late 40s, early 50s, actually, when this went off the air. What kid drama... And, man, every kid I knew listened to it far more than the other stuff that got more publicity was based on a caveman. The hero was a caveman. What was his name? Now, there's trivia. I'll award you a brass figdigy with bronze oak leaf palm. And and it was based on a, on a series. Yeah, a fantastic series. I remember... 
I remember this series, I, I guess, more than any, any other single uh, thing that I read as a kid, with the exception of the Oz stories. You know, I was deeply affected by the Oz stories, now that I look back on it. I've never really believed anything ever since that fantastic day in the Wizard of Oz's throne room, <laughs> when, uh, when uh, Dorothy and the Scarecrow and uh, the Tin Woodman, who was the other character in that, that crowd? Dorothy, the Scarecrow, and the Tin Woodman. And who was the, the fourth member of the party who arrived after a long trip along what road? What was the name of the road? Very famous road. Huh? Nope. And what city were they going to? What city did the Wizard of Oz live in? He ruled Oz. What was the name of the city? Well, this, after this great, you know, almost all of great literature, really great classical literature from home around down, is based on a voyage. You ever thought about that? Melville, Don Quixote, Candide. I'm talking about great literature. Really great. It's, it's based on a voyage of some kind. Dorothy. Her, her, the, the, the secret of Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, of course, was that her work was based on a search and a voyage. What was she searching for? What? <laughs> you mean you don't know? <laughs> what was the Tin Woodman searching for? They, all of them went on a search together. They decided to go together, and, and the, the word was out that, that if they got to this place, uh, this, this, this city, and they met the wizard, that they would get these things. They thought that. They thought that since it's a wizard, he can, he can produce these things for them. What was the scarecrow searching for? He had his thing. What was, what was the tin woodman searching for? No, he was not searching for an oil can. In fact, they, uh, that played a part. You know, an oil can played a part in that because he was, he was uh, rusted, see, and he was forever trapped in the... He was just trapped out in the woods. He, his, all of his joints rusted. He got caught in the rain, which was the worst thing that could happen to a man made out of tin. And uh, there he was. And they came along and they rescued him with an oil can. And what was he after? You were right. What was it? That is correct. He was after a heart. He, he did not have a heart, you see. When, the, when they put him together, <laughs> he was not given a heart. And the one thing he wanted most was a heart. Now, what would the, what would the, scare, what would the scarecrow want? A what? A body. He had a body. That wasn't his problem. Well, now, you see, I'm the only true scholar of this scene. Uh, uh, and they passed through numbers of lands on their way. Uh, what are some of them? The land of the... And it begins with an M. Have you ever heard of the Munchkins? All right, the land of the Munchkins. And uh, <laughs> they had their own ruler and the whole bit. But what road did they travel on? Yeah, they traveled on this road, see? And, and uh, I, you all know the name of the road. I'm not even going to bother to tell you about it. But uh, this really made a profound impression on me, see? 
that reading this, because I, I, these are one of some of the first things I ever read when I was a little kid. I must have been about, uh, right after I learned to read, about five or six. Everybody else is reading Raggedy Ann or Raggedy Andy. I'm reading this. And this is some of the most, I think some of the most, uh, this, this uh, to me, Frank Baum, who wrote the, the, this particular series, the Greek classic ones, he said more about life, genuinely, than Lewis Carroll did. But Lewis Carroll was English, and he had, uh, you know, he, he was attracted, the, the English majors were attracted to him. He's a, you know, <laughs> and he's a, he's a cutie pie in his writing, say, but, but uh, hardly anybody studies The Wizard of Oz and its impact on large numbers of people who've read it. And I remember them traveling all these millions of miles through these fantastic dangers and evils and uh, great triumphs, and finally they arrive at the throne room of the Wizard of Oz. He's the, the center of it all. This is where it all is. And the Tin Woodman, but speaking of that, this is the Wizard of Oz. Give me a little echo chamber. Hello. This is the Wizard of Oz. By the way, that was one of his gambits, you know. He, had a, he was one of the first guys to understand the power of the bullhorn. If you know anything about the Wizard of Oz, that was one of his tricks. He had a, he had a PA system. <laughs> and, he, and he hid behind this great, big, fantastic facade, and he would say things like, I am the Wizard of Oz. I rule this land with kindness, with truth. And you have but to bring your wishes to me, and I shall grant them as the great wizard of Oz. He said another thing, too. He was making pronouncements all the time. And one of his pronouncements was this. Therefore and forever after, all residents of my city, which is made of pure emerald, will wear green glasses. So that they shall not be blinded by the sheer beauty of the city which I have created out of pure, beautiful, raw emerald. You shall wear green glasses forever and never be caught without them, since you will be blinded instantly. I have placed a curse upon you. You must wear your green glasses. Why did he want him to wear green glasses? Oh, man. And then when I discovered what the Wizard of Oz really was, I have never been impressed by anything ever since. Reminds me, this is W.O.R. speaking of facades and bullhorns. Oh, hey, old buddy boy, does the uh, beautiful, uh, exciting thought of uh, driving on snow-covered Jersey roads give you the pip? <laughs> well, you don't have to. Your local General Tire headquarters has the answer. They're standing there stalwart and solid. They'd like to put a pair of General's famous winter cleat snow tires on your car, get rid of those baldies, and uh, this time you'll actually get out of those drifts instead of spending the month of December up to your hubcaps yelling and screaming. So uh, remember the promise. You go in snow or General pays the toll. Uh, you can count on these tires. Let's see. Uh, see Jack Crow at General Tire Service Northern Boulevard at 38th Street in Long Island City. Okay, guys. Set up the drums next to the water cooler. What is all this? The Red Baron of Lufthansa German Airlines won't like all you kids bursting into his office. Just tell the Baron that the world's hottest rock group is here. 
We're going to play a number to thank him for his youth fare to Europe. I mean, when a guy or a chick can fly Lufthansa across the Atlantic for only $210 round trip without taking anything stronger than an extra pair of socks. Yes, young people between 12 and 26 may fly Lufthansa any day from New York to Germany for only $210 round trip uh -huh. and stay as long as a year. Uh, plug in that electric car, Bruce. You can even fly on a weekend, no extra charge. Although between June 20th and July 25th, it is a few dollars more. Fine. That's when the tourists fly. It's worth it just for the laughs. But we don't need music to sell the Lufthansa Youth. This is strictly a red-hot thank you for the Red Hot Baron's Youth Fair. A one, a two. Hit it. Wait again, Sam. Oh, let's see, uh... Oh, here's a here's a little goodie. Gramercy Park close of 64 West 23rd Street, New York says, and we quote, Mister, do you really think you can wear a suit for 10 years and then cut it down to fit your kid? <laughs> what an idea. Men's clothes don't wear out these days. They just go out of style. You got two or three suits in the closet right now. If you wore them, your wife would leave you. Your friends would think that you lost your job and the kids would make a fantastic bad face. <laughs> Why don't you go up to the third floor of the factory building at 64 West 23rd Street? Go through the big iron gate that closes behind you with a clang. Take your time, try on all the suits, and then you're going to save yourself a lot of money. That's what Gramercy Park can do for you. Open to 7 p.m., Saturday to 4 p.m., Sunday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. That's Gramercy Park, closed 64 West 23rd Street. That's third floor, 64 West 23rd in New York. Well, it's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's Christmas fun time here on WOR again. Every year at this time, it's been going on for a long time. It's one of the really great charities of New York, and they make uh, kids happy in various hospitals by giving them Christmas gifts and so on. So send your check and money order, or money order, too. And here's the address, WOR Christmas Fund, Box 710, Times Square Station, New York. And the zip is 100. Three six. That's box seven ten. You know our frequency. We're very clever like that. How did it go? I felt so strange. You know, being interviewed by the baby adoption service. You seemed a bit edgy this morning. You should have taken aspirin. But I didn't have a headache. I felt a bit edgy, so I took Compose. Compose. For temporary relief of occasional simple nervous tension, take Compose. So how did it go? We're going to have a baby. A bit edgy at times? Help take the edge off with Compose. Honey, it's only my mother coming to dinner. Why the wig? Wigs are fashionable. Fashionable? What's with your head? Dandruff. And I used a dandruff shampoo two days ago. Maybe yours is tougher than plain dandruff. It can be psoriasis. See your doctor. Sorex medicated shampoo used regularly helps relieve flaking and scaling. Sorex. P-S-O-R-E-X. Tougher than plain dandruff. Well, it's Mom's night. No wig? I used my head. And Sorex. Sorex shampoo. Tougher than plain dandruff. Well, here's another one of your favorite little goodies here. I'm sure that you're all waiting out there. You can start your tape recorders if you want to save this as a uh, souvenir of this age. <laughs> the times rugged that we're passing through. Uh, it's a general tire spot. And if you're uh, contemplating uh, not only your navel, but you're contemplating the idea of getting a set of, uh, of uh, snow tires this year... Well, you do it the general way because they have their great uh, slogan. You go in snow or general pays the toe. And their tires are called winter cleat tires. And they're four-rib snow tires, and they work, which is not 
something that every snow tire can say or really get you out of the snow. Now, let's see. You can see Bob McCormick at State Line Tire, 80 Westport Avenue in Norwalk. That's right. How, how are you? You okay, Charlie? Okay. <laughs> no, that's all right. Nobody ever can hear me around it. It's okay. <laughs> hey, you know, speaking of, uh, of being uh, influenced by this... Uh, uh, this, this, uh, you know, this moment, this terrible moment in the throne room in the Emerald. Yeah, it's the Emerald City. I'll let you know. The city is the Emerald City. That's where, that's where the uh, big high muckamuck, the, the, uh, and what, what ultimately did Dorothy call him after the fiasco in the throne room? It was a terrible fiasco, and he started to cry, and she called him something. What was it? Ever since that time, I've been very conscious of that type. She called him a humbug, and I've worked for several. Oh, yes, I've been around humbugs all of my life, most of them sitting behind a facade with a bullhorn. Oh, I've been in many a throne room in many an Emerald City, gals. <laughs> oh, and guys and friends and neighbors. Oh, yeah. But uh, nevertheless, uh, uh, once you get, you know, you get seared by a thing. I suppose kids today, a lot of them are being inf- subconsciously influenced by Charlie Brown, you know peanuts and uh, they're going to grow up losers almost every one of them is going to think it's kind of groovy you know not to be able to pitch <laughs> it's kind of groovy to lose 422 to three you know and uh, uh it's kind of sad to, to 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 you know think that that's your your influence but that's what's happening and i and i suspect my influence uh, the influence that was on me was this moment in the throne room when uh, the the wizard of oz Turns up his PA system. See, he presses the button and he says, Hello, I'm glad to greet you, Dorothy of Kansas. And you, the Tin Woodman and the Scarecrow and the Cowardly Lion. Do you wish to make your desires known so that I can fill all your dreams and wishes? You have made a long journey. And as the Wizard of Oz, I would be glad to grant whatever wish you have. Yes, sir. And then the way it turned out, oh, man, what a drag. And so ever since that time, I've been uh, very leery of get-rich-quick schemes. I've been also very leery of of passing along my wishes to whatever wizard there is on hand, knowing full well that he'll turn out to be what Dorothy called him, which is a humbug. But uh, these things, of course, are only in passing. One says these things. And uh, we're influenced by a myriad of things, like the caveman thing. Like once when I was a kid, I was taken, you know how, how kids are taken on, on field trips? Well, Miss Robinette in fourth grade took us on a field trip to the Field Museum. And if you have never been in the Field Museum in Chicago, you've just never been in a museum. Let's give Chicago its due along the line and certain things. And I want to tell you, friends, the Field Museum is a, is a total gas. I mean, if you want some psychedelic experiences, you know, you've got to go there. Well, down in one of the rooms, I think it was... a. They had, a, they had a great uh, hall there. It was about man, the Hall of Man. And a famous, for some reason I even remember, it was a lady sculptor named Malvina something. The name hit me right away. She had carved out of bronze all the various races of man. Fantastic carvings, tremendous carvings of, of you know, anthropologically correct Aborigines, Indians, Caucasian, all these different races all standing there, these great bronze, tremendous statues. 
and they were they were accurate, absolutely accurate. Well, down in the basement of that building, I'm 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 walking along in the in the long line of kids that are being taken through this museum, see, by, by Miss Robinette, and uh, we had uh, we all had to contribute. Uh, remember, we had to br- we had to bring fifty cents each one of us, uh, so that uh, they could buy us uh, uh, you know buy us a coke and buy us a hamburger, and so that they could rent the bus and all that. And that was our field trip. Well, what did I realize that day? There, I was going to see a sight that I would never forget. I had been to the Field Museum before, but somehow we never had seen this part of the museum. I don't know why, just one of those things, because the museum, it takes you like 10 years to go through this thing. Well, we go down the basement, and they had all these big glass cases that were sunken into the walls. And the halls down in this part of the museum were very theatrical. They were darkened so that the, so that the cases shone like... like uh, like crystal Japanese lanterns. They, they glowed. And as you walk past these cases, you couldn't believe, I couldn't believe it. You know, really, it really was a fantastic sight. And I can still see it. It's funny, after all those years, I can see it as clearly as if, uh, well, as if I'm looking at it right now. It was a glass case that was set kind of at a catty corner in a corner of a, of a round part of the hall there. And here was this curving glass front to this case. And it came up to about your waist. It was just absolutely spotless glass. You couldn't even tell it was glass because you couldn't touch the glass. They had a little, kind of a little fence up. You couldn't get really close so you can reach out and touch it because the glass looked like it was not even there. It was that clean. And what were you looking into? What a sight. You were looking into a cave and it was dark. A real cave. They had reproduced a cave, beautifully done. It was dark. You could almost smell it. And in the cave, squatting, was a family of cave people. Cavemen. They just squatting down in the cave, and there was a there was a female cave person. And you know, it was it was they had frozen them in time just after the point when man began to utilize things like a, a piece of fur as a chunk of clothing to keep him warm. And she had this big chunk of fur over her, just hanging. And her long hair, and she had these flat, low forehead and, and tiny eyes, little tiny eyes about the size of nail heads. These great heavy brows that hung down over her eyes, you know, like, almost looked like porches hung down like that, see. She had this undershot jaw, real undershot, and, and big teeth, strange teeth that came down, almost like fangs. She still had this, you know, and uh, she's squatting down, very tiny. She looked like she was about four feet, maybe four feet, not more than four feet, little squat, sloping shoulders, and she had this tiny baby that was all wrapped up in this fur, and she was holding it up against her like she was sort of like maybe nursing it or something. You couldn't really tell. You saw it was a baby there, see? And off by the side of the cave, up against the wall, was this male, tremendous male, and he was bent over. He wasn't much higher than four feet tall either, see? He looked a lot like Bolas. He was, he was about, this friend of mine, he was about four feet tall, see? But bent. He was, had a bent, and his head hung forward. He had this great scraggly chunks of hair that all hung down, and it was like he was just looking over his right shoulder, see? We almost saw it was looking at his back, 
and he was looking over at us as if we had suddenly come upon the, the mouth of this cave, and he was looking at us as though there was some kind of danger. And he was reaching down for this this big, it was like a big chunk of branch or something he had down there, like a club, and he was reaching for it. He was looking over his shoulders with these red bloodshot eyes. And it was lit very dramatically, dark. It was as though there was a faint light from the outside coming in there. They had no artificial light, of course. They did not have any, uh, you know, any uh, high-intensity bulbs or anything like that. See? <laughs> there was no TV. That's what it was. No, no radio, nothing. We were just squatting in a cave, see. And the cave, apparently, was, was had another entrance. You could see out through the other side. It was a little passageway out. And out on the other side there, you could see this dim light out there where, where the world was. And it was kind of gray. And they had it raining out there. There was rain going past. They were squatting in that cave. Talk about realism. And they, they, there was nothing. There was no, no sentiment about it because there was also a large piece of some animal that apparently he had killed and they just had ripped off this piece of, uh, of flesh. It was a large piece of it. It had fur on it. It was, it was laying out of blood all over the floor and it was, it was up against the side of the cave where he'd pulled this in. You could see where it had been dragged in. You could see through the, through the sand and stuff on the cave, the, the floor of the cave where it had been dragged in. All of us kids stood there. <laughs> Gee. And Miss Robinette turns to us, and she's pointing at the cave, these people. And I remember her saying, boys and girls, these are very early men. That out of these early men, we have evolved. And that they are our ancestors. You, you know what ancestors are? Of course, I mean, the uh, Eileen Akers, who was the... You know, they uh, answered all the questions for the class. I didn't acres, but yes, uh, ancestors are like my uncle and aunt. And she says, yes, that, that, not really, but they're more like your grandfather and your grandmother. They're, they're your grandfather's mother. Uh, they're your ancestors, people you've never seen. But without them, you wouldn't exist. That hit me. Without these two fantastically rotten-looking people who looked almost like the Bumpus family, I would not have existed. That made a real impression on me. I could hear Joshua. You know, he's standing there looking. He's standing next to me in Schwartz. You know, looking at this thing. Wow. Because you see, we were listening on the radio to this caveman story. <laughs> and the cavemen were so groovy. They were little, they were almost like, a uh, little like Joe Namath or something. They were always, uh, you know, scoring a big touchdown against the mammoths or something. But it, it never occurred to us that they looked almost exactly like animals. There's hardly any difference between them and, and, and gorillas and apes and stuff. Animals. Never forgotten that. I think a lot of us have. You, know, you scratch the skin of anybody walking around the street, and you got a carnivore. Sorry, Peggy and Fitzgerald, you do. He's ready to go out and get that red meat. Drag it into the cave. He looks over his shoulder with that, that flashing red, smoldering look of the animal who senses danger. Who senses danger. I looked at that thing and I said, oh, man. 
But then we went around to the Indian section. You know, they were much more realistic. Most of us think of Indians as what we've seen in the movies. Well, they had a beautiful reconstruction of one particular Indian tribe, which lived in the, in the Illinois area. How many of you know that cannibalism was very, very common among Indians? Do you know that? Most of us don't. We keep thinking of them as these guys played by Anthony Quinn. <laughs> and they had, they had this, this was all anthropologically correct, you know. And we, we've carefully skimmed over a lot of this stuff. And here was this, this, this Indian group of this particular tribe of Indians, absolutely re meticulously recreated. And there had been just a big, a big, what they used to do, they didn't eat each other, they ate their enemies. That, that, in fact, the Indians, certain tribes, would go out and hunt members of other tribes for sport. Just like uh, you may go out and hunt birds. And it was a sport. Did you know that? Very few people know much about Indians. And don't, don't, uh, don't take Jane Fonda as the final expert. I mean, there's a, there's a lot about Indians. And I'm not putting Indians down. I'm just relating uh, an anthropological fact. This is the truth. And, uh, and uh, in fact, if you want to read a story, a really interesting story about Indians, uh, there's a book, I don't recall who wrote it, but it's a beautiful novel, I think, on the subject, called Woman of the People. Woman of the People. You can pick it up in paperback, but there's a scene in there of, of a captured enemy that's fantastic, what they do to this enemy. And uh, nevertheless, I remember that scene of these Indians. There were several, several Indians squatting around. And they, they, had, they had the body of one of the... the uh, of, of another tribe, which was their traditional enemy. And the body was stretched out flat. They had these, these pegs driven through him down into the ground. He was lying there. And, and the medicine man and the chief, and they were, they were just about to, uh, let's put it this way, dig in. <laughs> and I remember looking at that scene. And this had nothing to do with Hiawatha. Nothing. Yeah. And so I came home that night. I remember getting home on the bus and I was, was profoundly affected. Because <laughs> uh, you know how it is. You know, your kids, you always read about Indians and you always read about Kevin. Somehow they just seem like us, except they got bearskin rugs. You know, we still see that. Have you seen the cartoons for B.C.? You know, cavemen are sort of like us. You know, they talk like, uh, somehow they talk a little bit like a Snoopy. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, I came home. I remember sitting there at the, at the dinner table saying, my mother said, what's the matter? And, uh, my old man said, what's the matter? What's eating you, you know? And, uh, my mother said, well, you went to the museum today. <laughs> I was in fourth grade. It's up third grade. And, uh, she said, we went to the museum today. He hasn't said anything since. The old man says, what's, what's eating you, anyway? I say, Dad, you know? Do we, are, we, are we related to cavemen? I mean, Really? Oh, man, you know, he's our, our resident anthropologist, you know, our resident expert. He says, are we related to what? I says, cavemen. Cavemen. He says, yeah, so what? He says, that's what, <laughs> that's what my old man was. Yeah, so what? I said, wow, they're, you know, animals. Do you mean that, that, 
that our relatives all the way back as far as you can go were cavemen and they ate meat raw and everything? I said, yeah. Yeah. That's right. So what? See, it didn't bother him at all. He just took it in his stride. What are you going to do about it? You know, so what? You know? Well, I thought about that. And then I began to see things. You walk around the street. You ever do this? Do you ever walk around and pick on the street faces that, that echo and hint of anthropological antiquity? Well, really, that, that I've read many anthropologists say is uh, physical. Now, see, we're used to social anthropologists, you know, the Martha, the Margaret Mead type. That's a, but a physical anthropologist who's interested in the evolution of the head, the evolution of the, of the finger. He's not worried about how you act. He's, he's interested in the evolution of the wrist, uh, the evolution of the forearm, the evolution of the, of the spine. The way, the way a man stands is important, evolutionary. You know, it's only within recent evolutionary time that man has stood upright like we do. Man was almost a four-footed creature not too long ago. And standing upright is, is unusual. It's new. It's comparatively new. Well, of course, when you stand upright now, all the organs of the body now are in different positions, and they're really basically set up to be a four-footed animal. And so a lot of the problems that happen to your body are happening because, our, you know, just man as man, I'm saying. A lot of the problems are related to the fact that we're standing in an unnatural position, that the, that the, that the weight of a, of a certain organ is unnatural. It should be in a different way. You see, it should be hanging differently. If you were standing four-feeted, it would not be that way. So I'm thinking about this. Oh, man, cavemen. And at night, I'm lying in beds. <laughs> you know how kids think. And, and, I, and I kept thinking about that cave, that gray rain outside. That, that female, that woman, hunched over a baby. Of course, I related to the baby at that time. And that great big, he wasn't really big physically, tall, but broad, tremendous chest. That male caveman looking over his shoulder at us through the vast, the, the unimaginable cavern, the tunnel of time. I thought, I'm a caveman. Inside of me flows the blood of a caveman somewhere. There's a tiny drop someplace. Yeah, there's a maybe even a fugitive instinct. And that's the most important one of all. That we're about 20 years removed from barbarism at any given time in history. I bet many, an old, many a kid has thought his old man looks like a caveman. If you ever watched a pro football game with your eyes half closed? Yeah. You see these great hulking beasts covered with hair, their eyes mere slits. When you see them going back to the huddle, you can see a tribal ritual. They've gone back to the huddle to prepare further mayhem on the other tribe. And once in a while, there's a guy lying out there and he's been flattened in a play. Have you noticed the crowd cheers? the fallen victim of the other tribe. And the next step, of course, when football really gets going, they will symbolically barbecue him.
drag him back to the huddle. <laughs> and they will remove his helmet that will be a scalp. And the flickering flames outside the teepee grow dim. The wind is picking up, coming in over the mesa. Winter cannot be far behind since the moon of the silver chariot, which comes just before the moon of the howling children and just before the moon of the weeping mothers and the moon of the crying wind. Yes, winter can't be too far behind. It's coming up on us. flight of full-blown, totally realized, unbelievably incisive imagination. Well, what are you going to do, you know? In- incidentally, uh, even turtles are affected by time. I mean, uh, right now at this minute, the sand is blowing over the pyramids and wearing them down to a nubbin. There'll be nothing left in maybe four or five eons. And where is it all going to end? Well, that's a question that's been asked many times over and over again and will appear on the next semester's work. So get your notebooks ready, and we'll have the answers for you that time. We don't want to jump ahead in time. It'll be a lecture course, and there'll be three periods of uh, laboratory work, including a workbook. W.O.R. New York. Lester Smith and the News is next. <laughs>